Hi, welcome back to That Night in Toronto, a personal journey through the music of the Tragically Hip, album by album, track by track, with me, Vince Savard. So we've uh, we've crossed the Rubicon into a new uh, new millennium, new decade. We're well into it now with uh, Inviolate Light, uh, last one being Music at Work. Now, I have to say, I I, I heard the cries. I mean, I, I could actually hear myself as I was editing the. Um, of the podcast down and I, I kept calling the album, the song title. I kept calling it my music at work and you know, the tragically hips album, my music at work. It isn't the album title is not my music at work. It's just music at work. And, you know, given as how I think you probably listened to two or 300 podcast episodes before you, you film one, you're, you're well used to, and it's a trope. I mean, it's, yeah, it's an absolute trope to hear uh, people shouting at the, um, you know, at the recording going, what are you doing? That's not, that's not what it is. You're wrong. Or no, 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 no. Luke said this or, you know, any other thing or, you know, and here's a thing that's just, uh, you know, just bugging me is that, um, you know, two things happened uh, in, uh, you know, in those, I've been listening to uh, uh, Star Wars Minute and they're up to, um up to the, uh, the last Jedi. And, you know, two things about it. First of all is the, um, you know, the basic plot mechanism is taken right out of the first, first episode of Battlestar Galactica, which finally, finally somebody mentioned today, but there was, oh God, there was another thing that they did. There was another, you know, just a pure reference from something else that I, I can't recall. And, um, and if one more person writes an article that refers to a staycation as just taking a vacation in your own country, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lose it. I mean, everyone knows that a staycation means you're staying at home. You don't go anywhere. That's what the stay is. Staying in the country is still a vacation. I mean, up until I moved to, you know, up until I moved to Europe, every vacation would have been a staycation because we never left Canada. We visited friends and family uh, you know, and, uh, and that was it. There wasn't any of this kind of, you know, wandering about different countries. That was, a, you know, that was for, you know, the rich or people who lived really close to different countries where they could fly for an hour and be in a different country. Ah, flying. I remember it even before it was miserable. And that's one of the Rubicons we passed going from music at work to, um, to in violet light is I've moved countries. Now, so in uh, in August of 2001, uh, my partner and I, Joe, moved from Paris to London. We, um, the company I was working for, were looking to establish a more permanent presence in Europe, and my my position had the opportunity to transform into from expat into just a you know just an immer- you know just an immigrant moving to a new country. We thought about it for a bit. I mean, with France, there was the cheese, the wine. The city of Paris, which is, you know, still, you know, un- unparalleled in terms of what it offers, how beautiful it is, how relatively easy it is to get around, how small and compact it is compared to um, compared to London, which is at least, you know, maybe seven or ten different cities all abutting each other with, uh, you know, with a with a shared bus and uh, and tubes system. So. You know, we decided to move. We moved in uh, in August. We looked around at places, and again, yeah, moving to, moving to new cities and moving to new countries, you just have no frame of reference. I mean, first of all, the rent prices were quoted in uh, per week. 
which we looked at and thought, what? what, what do you mean per week? And what you did and what you do is you take the per week, um, the per week rental cost, and then you multiply it by 4.3. Cause that's a normal thing. So the place we moved to was, uh, yeah, I mean, paid more with everything here in London in terms of accommodation and that it paid more for it than I have anytime in anywhere else. So we moved to, uh, we moved to London. We, moved to a, uh, a part of the, the city called Battersea, which would, which has probably been where we've lived for about half of our stay in London. So we moved to Battersea in August of 2001, and we stayed there until February 2003. Uh, our, our landlord put, our, put our, our flat up for sale. So we lived up on the top two floors of a, uh, of a terraced house. And a terrace of houses are houses that are all attached to each other with backyards together where the, you know, they essentially each house shares a fence. It's a fairly common, common bit of construction. And where we were, the terraces were, were big. It was tall. I mean, there was a ground floor, there were two floors that we lived on. And then there was a, uh, there was space and room for, you know, even to have a, um, to build up into the attic or the loft as they call it here. At any rate, we, um, we moved here. We then called for all of our possessions to come in from, from, uh, from Seattle where they were put in storage and they got there. Eventually, uh, we had very little when we moved in just what we had in Paris, we brought with us. So, you know, a, a wine fridge and a lot of wine, not, not all you need to live on. So we had to rent some furniture for, for a few weeks until all, all of our stuff came from, you know, came from North America and a lot of we didn't need like, you know, TVs, appliances, things that wouldn't work on the new current. And they, they eventually hung around for a few months until we finally just had somebody haul them away as scrap because what were we going to do with them? So we set up in this place where we had, um, you had a living room kitchen on the main, on the first floor of the, the flat. Uh, we also had a full bathroom and a, uh, and a bedroom at the back. Then we had the upstairs, there was a, a large, large bathroom, the, the master bathroom that was converted from another bedroom. So it was a big chunk of space. There was a tub, there was a shower, there was, you know, laundry facilities. That's uh, where the boiler was. It was a really, you know, it was an interesting design. Then there was the master, you know, the master bedroom. Um, we kind of got used to, we put a bike, we, I left my bike outside for a few times and that got stolen. I think that's really the only thing that we've had nicked while we've been here in, uh, in London. So when we moved there, Battersea was, it was up and coming, but it was still a bit rough around the edges. I wasn't used to, you know, houses that, that cost you know, millions of pounds being right next to public housing estates where there was, you know, the cost was substantially less. So it took a while to get used to, but, but eventually we did and we settled in. So you know, this is, this was really the beginning of uh, you know, our, our residency in London, which has been going on for well over, well, for getting on 20 years now. And, you know, it was also, you know, the, just the beginning of fulfilling every single, I want to see them live, you know, that we, that, that I had left or I wanted to do in, in my life. Like, um, you know, in Paris kind of ticked off. I mean, it was all the people at that Amnesty International gig. There was, uh, you know, there was Pearl Jam. And moving here, there was just, there will be, you know, all sorts of things and ranging from quality to seeing Wheatus at the Brixton Academy, which I did at during this time. And it was, uh, you know, it was okay. It was, it was kind of fun. They were, 
Uh, you know, they actually brought out Bruce Dickinson uh, for a song while they were, uh, you know, while they were on stage. He kind of just roamed around the stage rather than really played or did anything because the sound of, despite what Teenage Dirtbag says, the sound of, um, you know, the sound of Weedus and the sound of Iron Maiden, very, very different. So as we came over here and uh, we'd been here, been in London for just about a year, came out in Violet Light. So in Violet Light was the, uh, you know, was the hip's eighth full length album. Uh, so it, it came in at number two, number two, not number one, number two, selling almost 33,000 copies in its first week and obviously went to platinum and has been there for a while. It, it had the we were still at the very, very early stages of internet and internet music. Like I think in 2002, Napster still wasn't a thing yet. So we had some digital music services. I don't think the, you know, the iPod hadn't, hadn't launched yet or had, had just, you know, just launched. There was no, there was no real, you know, infrastructure yet for, for music. So yeah, the iPad had launched on the 23rd of October, 2001. So when it, when it came out, it only had a, you know, it had a firewire connector, didn't have a USB. It didn't have, you know, you know, iTunes was all really only available on the Mac. There was it, the infrastructure for digital music wasn't what it is today. But when you, when you got the album, uh, there was packaged with a membership card for the hip club, an online fan club, which had three bonus tracks. I remember getting the, I remember getting the CD for inviolate light. I remember seeing the card. I then remember doing nothing else with it because I don't know the, whether there were, you know, regional restrictions or that, but it just wasn't something I, uh, you know, I ended up doing. So, uh, the album itself was produced by Hugh Padham and, uh, Mark for along with the hip. So Hugh Padham, you know, had, uh, I don't know that he'd worked with them before. I could, well, actually, let me let me go and verify that to see if you pat him had work. No, this was Hugh's first, you know, first work with the hip. Uh, he, he hadn't worked with them, you know, hadn't worked with them before. So this was a, uh, you know, this was a change very much for the, you know, for the hip to add a new producer. You know, Mark Verkeen had been a guiding hand the whole time. And Hugh Padham was a, uh, was an English record producer, you know, had a few Grammys back in the, uh, back in the mid eighties. So he, he definitely is a name and was, it was influential on the album. So I think as you, as you see, as with any band, as they go through their, their evolution and changes, the producer makes a big difference in, in how things change. So, uh, the hip tied together with a, um, you know, with a couple of other quintessential Canadian things. And, and it's funny how many how I kept track and kept close with the hip, but not well. The, so the few things, the hip corner gas, the trailer park boys a little bit. It was always just a bit too, I don't know. It was just a bit too uh, blunt or cringy to be perfectly funny, but for the music video for it's a good life. If you don't weaken was filmed, uh, you know, it was filmed in Oshawa and then the, uh, the darkest one, had Don Cherry and the Trailer Park Boys. So I think this was before, well, this was certainly before Don Cherry took his uh, you know, slightly questionable reputation and, and lit it on fire uh, with his behavior over the last couple of years. So knowing what Gord, you know, valued and, and felt it, uh, if he'd have said some of these things before they, they collaborated on a video, it, it just wouldn't have happened. So In Violet Light was a shorter album, you know, coming in at only 
only 45 minutes uh, rather than the uh, rather than 51 minutes. So, you know, six minutes long, uh, 11 tracks as opposed to 14. You know, they, they had been on a long, long tour road with um, with envi- with uh, music at work. So, you know, it is a, um, you know, it was a challenge to see what they'd uh, what they'd done. But this was this was definitely a sign of where I, I listened to the album a couple of times. I mean, this was the right in that awkward transition where you really couldn't carry, you know, carrying music about you still meant a, a discman. I hadn't I didn't get my first kind of portable music MP3 player. I had a little creative labs one that was um yeah it was it was a small one i had it for so this is 2002 i probably got it about 2003 2004 so you know you couldn't put you didn't have music on your phone and everything was hard to move around my uh you know my boss and my friend nathan had um he had a first i'm pretty sure he had a first generation ipod if not a first gen then a second gen ipod i, n- I never i never had an ipod until they had the ipod touch so i never had a disc uh, you know uh, the disc model so Nathan was, um, Nathan was involved in that. And, and that was, uh, you know, it was just a bit more difficult to have music around. So I didn't always have a commute. I, I, I got a lift in with Nathan cause we lived right by the same place. Well, obviously we worked at the same company. So the time and the space to have music to listen to was, was a bit less, you know, Joe and I never, well, we sometimes like, we didn't quite always have the same taste in music. I had my, uh, I did get speaker. So I, we're actually, you know, we're starting to set up like a five, you know, five speaker surround sound system. I bought a DVD player. So we're starting to build, you know, kind of the bones of a home entertainment system while we're living there. And like with everything else, you know, a lot of uh, older houses, you know, in, in the UK are really designed to have a wall for entertainment or for a big, uh, for a big screen. So it took us a while to get things set up, but um, at any rate. So that's where I was in my life. Uh, we'll definitely talk about after we go through the album. I want to talk a bit about um, a bit about a, an, an article I came across where uh, Inviolate Light had a uh, had a big feature to it, and talk about the the first and only concert. Not, maybe not the only concert my brother and I went to. We had to have done one in Grand Prairie, but certainly the one that sticks out in my mind is going to see the Hip on this tour in, in November of. Uh, you know, in, in November of 2003 uh, to, uh, I can't be right. No, not November, November 2002 to see the uh, the hip play uh, at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. We'll get to the show. We'll get to the experience. And we'll get to everything else that happened in those, those couple of years. But first, the album. So let's talk about In Violet Light. The album starts off with Are You Ready? Which gets things off to a pretty, you know, pretty jump and start. You know, and, um, you know, two minutes, 39 seconds, and a really kind of, you know, an upbeat feel to it. And again, much like music at work, I knew the songs that they played in this, like, you know, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken and Silver Jet. I actually probably heard them more as, as songs off of live tracks and live shows. So... As again, as I lifted this one, I'm like, wow, this is a really great album. And yeah, it is. 
So Are You Ready is a great way to start the uh, start the album, and I would bet that they use it a lot as a first uh, you know first song to start to start shows. It uh, it asks a very pertinent question, you know, are you ready? Asking it a little bit more, well in their own special way rather than like a corn. So you know, are you ready? Or are you ready? I guess we're ready. Then we move into Use It Up, which carries a lot more of some of the, you know, it, it feels like a kind of a distance, middle distance hip song, hip, hip theme. It definitely has a feel of using a drum machine rather than using the human drummer at the beginning to lay down that initial percussive track before the guitar gets in there. That just this has a feel of something electronic. And then Johnny Faye starts drumming in the the, um, you know, the top track fades out and then it transforms into, you know, it transforms, but it moves into a, um, you know, into another, you know, another layer of more, a more, well, not more of a hip song, but then it gets the, it gets to the hip part of things. It's also interesting to see that there are, you know, on a relatively short album, there are four tracks that are over four minutes long, a six minute track, and... You know, everything is is three three and a half minutes or longer, with the exception of "You're Ready," of "Are You Ready?" "Are You Ready?" is only two minutes forty. Everything else is quite a bit longer, which which might explain why there's fewer tracks on the album and a shorter runtime, even though the the individual songs are are longer. So it it, it goes through and plays with the um, you know plays with moving to you know physical drums versus a you know, versus a drum machine to give it a metronomic effect and it it does add a you know add a lusher layer to it i mean i talked about in music at work how it felt like the keyboards gave it more not lush or a bit of a more depth to the feel whereas uh whereas here maybe the drum you know the drum machine transitioning or going along into the live drums makes a makes a difference you know and we'll we'll get to my usual what seems to be coming my usual sort of four songs in how are we doing checkpoint and of course we have our old friend the crossfade back so when we get to the end of use it up it crossfades into the darkest one which has this there's a it's almost like a um, a 70s feel to the beginning of it with a guitar riff and there's that it's not horns but there's that counterpoint it's probably a keyboard that gives it a slight horn feel to it without being you know without having like the tower of power horns playing in the back i mean you know they're not um, this isn't a squeeze album it isn't uh it isn't cake where they have a you know a one guy playing the you know trump or basically playing all the other things that aren't the guitar it is uh it gives it a, another layer without it being so obvious and very brassy. It still still falls in very much into, you know, their A B A B structure. We get into, we build up to the uh, you know build up to where we're going from the verse into the chorus. 
And I think, of course, the, the, the lyrical, the, the hook on this one is, uh, is strong. You know, well, the wild is strong and the strong are wild. The only thing, the only thing I wish I maybe had of this is I've, I think I kept most of them, but I, I've got them put away as, as I you know, have the physical material to have the, the lyric sheet out in front of me, but I'll, I'll muddle through somehow. So it's a good life if you don't weaken is the fourth track of the album. And it's based on a, uh, the title is from a graphic novel by a Canadian graphic artist known as Seth. It, uh, you know, it has a, it tells a story of a, of a cartoonist named Kalo in the 1940s. I guess someone, you know, someone talks about the life on the road and reference someone this step, uh, it's credited here as a woman named uh, Molly Lorimer, who used to say it's a good life if you don't weaken as uh, you know, as a reference to how you can get through life on the tour. So this one definitely brings in a, you almost feel the color of the album cover in this. It feels violet, like it's fading light, like that's, you know, that is, that is changing, that is hard to see. It has the, the quiet intensity that was really first seen in Day for Night, you know, and it was perfected on Trouble at the Hen House, kind of peaking perhaps with Don't Wake Daddy. But it, it is a, it gets us to the fourth song of the album. There's another, you know, longer track at four, four minutes, 23 seconds. It, so we're here, we're here. We're at the fourth song. And we check in and stacks up, holds up completely. You know, they, they do tend to, you know, do tend to front load albums. But this one also has, you know, I've the, the dire wolf and the dark Canuck at the back end means that there's still plenty of strength left to, uh, you know, left in the uh, in the album. But this one fits well and is one that had a long life on tour and was used in, you know, many, many tours after uh, in violet light. And I, I, I can't I hear this one, the version here, and I keep comparing it to the version on the Canada Day show I have of theirs that was done during the In Between Evolution tour. They had a you know terrific rendition of It's a Good Life. And you can really hear it. You almost this is one of those tracks when you hear it, you want to you want to hear it sung live to feel the the intensity that Gord is that Gord can put to it. So we're a track for you know, strong ones, you know, not strongest not the strongest four tracks on this album or any album but definitely four very very strong tracks silver jet turns up the intensity a bit it is the uh, it is a song i have to move this the mic just a bit because I, otherwise I keep banging on my shoulder and I, I know that that carries through. Moonlight, just the, I need you and here's why it's not in and shadows. 
So Silver Jet is the uh, is the, the track on the album that has the uh, has the name of the album in it. It, it has the words "In Violet Light." And this is another one that is familiar with that the Canada Day gig. But um, but again, it's a it's a good it's a, it's a song that doesn't have a lot of tricks to it. It's kind of a straightforward song. Like, are you ready? Not as not as driving. It has the uh, you know just goes A B A B verse chorus verse chorus bridge. Very much uh, yeah, very much keeping to a standard uh, you know s- strong a standard song structure, but creating something that would you know that can carry weight in any um, you know any show that they do from from here on out. So we go from Silver Jet to a more acoustic song called Throwing Off Glass. Now, Throwing Off Glass was um, was a song that they also provided to the Men With Brooms soundtrack album. Now, Men With Brooms is a movie I would have absolutely gone to see at, um, you know, at the cinema because it was, you know, a Canadian, you know, a Canadian production. It starred um, Paul Gross, who had risen to... Um, you know, who had risen to a degree of fame by being uh, on a, um, a TV show that I think was was syndicated in the U.S. or might have been um, CBS was for one season that went to syndication about a. Um, it was like, what if Sergeant Preston moved to New York and worked with a, you know, with an American cop? So, and Paul Gross was is uh, an ex University of Alberta graduate, so he went to the same school as my. Uh, yeah, his alma mater was the same as my um, my wife's, and actually, interestingly enough, I believe uh, Nathan Fillion, also a U of A graduate. So it was a song. It was a it was a romantic comedy that centered curling. Yes, yes, you heard me right, curling. An activity in a sport where many of the um, you know athletes, and you'll have to you'll have to hear the uh, the air quotes thrown around that are you know hey well you know. Pear is a shape. Don't let anybody tell you any different. So I've, I've honestly never seen it because, you know, it's never been in reruns over here. It didn't get a theatrical release. I she said, I don't even know if it's available any place off of any place other than maybe uh, iTunes Canada. So, yeah. All tore up, changes the tempo and changes the the volume of things drastically. We're back up to maybe the uh, you know same you know tempo as we had for "Are You Ready?" Starting out with a nice fuzzy guitar riff, something pretty uncomplicated. The drums jump in, and now we've got it still maintains the same you know lush kind of really substantial feel to it, but is probably recorded fairly you know fairly live. And it's almost like they, um, you know, they like to vary the tempo on the albums like you would kind of mix in songs from, you know, when you're doing a live show. Although in fairness, you really couldn't add in, um, you can't just put New Orleans to sinking somewhere in every album.
so they bring the tempo right back down with leave. We get, you know, not a riff. We don't start out with a, you know, a riff or a really big guitar lick. It's noodly, distorted, a bit, you know, a bit echoey. And it kind of then meanders along throughout the, you know, throughout the rest of the song. So Leave has, uh, it's a talking song. You know, Gord isn't, he's, he gets the same, you know, farther into the, you know, the end of the song, but, you know, speaks, speaks the lyrics out here more than, uh, you know, than really sings them from the, the top of his, uh, top of his lungs. There's a, there's a degree of variety to this. I, I think the one thing I would say is that in Violet Light, um, if we compare it to maybe what, um, you know, what I felt or what I saw in Phantom Power, it maybe is, you know, less of a, less of a unified whole or even, you know, even like different acts in it. So the album has some great components to it. I like the album. I like the content of it. I mean, I like the album, the songs that come in there, but it doesn't, it isn't, you know, I don't like it as much as I like Phantom Power or perhaps even music at work. So a beautiful thing is, um, wow, I mean, it's a, a terrific song, but it is absolutely IRS era REM. I mean, maybe, maybe it could be seen as late as, um, you know, late as uh, out of time or automatic for the people. But this is an absolutely, I mean, you play it next to a, you know, next to an R.E.M. song of a similar era of that sort of IRS or early, early major label era. And you, you get that, uh, you get that there, that, you know, the, the lyrics moving along quickly, they're, they're higher up than some of the early stuff that R.E.M. did. The lyrics aren't buried in the mix, they're more up front. The beautiful thing, the way you went to the chorus is almost one where we could, you could imagine, it had it had it stuck in the consciousness, had it been one that stayed in show after show after show after show, you could see crowds singing a beautiful thing and arms waving in the air. It is, um, it's a lighter waver. It is a 100% lighter waver. I mean, it it is that, and it does have that bright Peter Buck guitar feel to it. I mean, you can almost think of it and see it, um, you know, maybe in your mind substitute the acoustic guitar notes that are up front with maybe a mandolin. And then, then it really would, you know, get transformed into something having that REM feel. It's again, one of my more favorite tracks on the album. I try not to say this is my favorite because otherwise I end up sounding like a Vin Diesel on the uh, pitch black uh, director's commentary, directors and cast commentary track where every other scene was his favorite scene. So I want to be more, more uh, discerning than that, but it is a, it is a great song. It is one of my more favorite tracks on the album. So we move from the beautiful thing into the dire wolf. It's kind of funny that the dire wolf is, uh, is, is taken from a, uh, a poem uh, by Walter Stevens of a sea, called The Sea Surface 
full of clouds. It is, uh, you know, I was talking about the powers of the imagination. And it definitely has a, uh, it has a, you know, has a feel very much in what is in the, you know, what is in the, uh, what is in the, uh, the poem. I like it because it you know, talks about the Isle of Mull, so you're off the coast of Scotland. And a dire wolf is a terrific reference. I mean, you know, if you're, you know, depending on what your, uh, depending on what your, uh, your, your uh, preferences for fantasy literature you might, or how much Dungeons and Dragons you played as a kid, a dire wolf may be a very familiar thing to you. It's, um... It, it had a big life in uh, Game of Thrones. It was a big thing to there, but it was, it was something that was always familiar to me as a, you know, as somebody who played a lot of nerd poker as a teenager and then through college. Um, dire wolves were basically big wolves. Goblins could ride them. Goblins often did ride them. So they were, they were never quite as imposing as they had them on Game of Thrones. I think they were like a, probably a third or fourth, or maybe as high as a fifth level monster. Not, uh, you know, they weren't a stone giant or anything, but uh, anyway. I digress. So with Direwolf being the penultimate track on the album, we'll now get to the last track. So the Dark Canuck is the longest song of the album and it is, uh, you know, it is referenced. The first song, the first half of the song seems to be sung in tribute to those who served, you know, in, in Canada's, you know, kind of mixed legacy for for peacekeeping. So, you know, Canadians, uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King, uh, the Canadian Prime Minister who developed the concept of peacekeeping, won the, um, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize which seems like an interesting and a wonderful thing until you realize that, you know, uh, Henry Kissinger has a Nobel Peace Prize. So the, the song is always written from two perspectives. One is a salute to those who keep watch and keep others safe, and then turns around to be the dark Canucks view, looking homeward overseas, wanting to, to come back, to come back home. So we get to the the coat, you know, the end of the album with the dark Canuck. So in Violet Light, I'm what I am having troubles finding, and I wasn't able to find it for now. And I may may throw it in a, a bonus episode or maybe some errata. Is the are the are the other three digital tracks that I did not get? So I right now I can honestly tell you that I do not have a copy of Problem Bears, Forest Edge, or Ultra Mundane. I simply don't have anything. You need that around. So I've got to go track that down. And I just, I just never did. I might not have even been, I might not have even been aware of it at the time or wasn't well publicized. I think I'm trying to remember where I got, I don't know whether I bought the album in Canada or I bought the CDs and imports on Amazon. Um, I mean, I knew it just came out and I ended up buying it. So there we are. We're 11 tracks, 45 minutes, 16 seconds. So as I said up front, 
a lot of things changed between the, you know, between the years uh, intervening between um, the release of Phantom Power. <laughs> a lot of things changed between the release of Music at Work and the release of Inviolate Light. I moved to a different country, one which I still, you know, uh, still call home, still is where I live. Uh, the world changed in a very strange and, you know, unpredicted way beforehand. Uh, and, um, yeah, and, and I really was able to start ticking off bands that I could, uh, you know, that I've seen that I've wanted to always wanted to see. So the hip, uh, became my favorite band to see in London. Uh, certainly the one that I have seen the most in London. And the first show that they, they did in London that I saw was on the 20th of November in 2002. So it was at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. Now, uh, London has a lot of concert venues and they range in size and scale from, you know, the o, right now the O2, which is ah, about the size of your typical, maybe a smallish to medium size uh, NHL rink, you know, kind of in the 15, 16,000. Uh, there's Wembley Arena, which is smaller, um, but, you know, but still sizable. Then there's all the outdoor venues. I mean, concerts get played at Wembley Stadium which is, you know, up to 80,000 people. They get played at uh, some of the bigger and newer uh, football stadia here. So the Emirates, uh, the London Stadium that was built for the Olympics, uh, Twickenham, which is a rugby stadium, which again is like, you know, is around 80,000 people. And then there's all these other places around fields like at uh, the Reading Festival or, or Glastonbury. So it is home of the big venue uh, for sure. Also, there are these kind of London in particular has these sort of selection of maybe 1500s up to 3000 seat venues that are or were, you know, maybe theaters, but have now been converted to concert venues. If they have multiple floors, there'll be a standing. There'll basically be a standing area, bars around side, an area where they can put the, the mixing and lighting desk, then a proscenium stage where the band would play. And one of the biggest, biggest examples of that is the Brixton Academy, which is, you know, where I've seen Wheatus, um, the Prophets of Rage, Cypress Hill, and in a number of other, number of other groups play. Then they kind of scale down and depending on where you go, they get a little bit smaller. So uh, the Shepherd's Bush Empire is modeled in the same way where there's a downstairs with a floor, um, areas underneath, and at least two, I think two, at least maybe three, two levels of balcony. And then, uh, you know, proscenium stage. So uh, on the 20th, I took my uh, my brother who was over visiting from Canada. We weren't going to be going home, uh, home for Christmas or back to Canada for Christmas that year because we'd uh, we'd bought an apartment and, uh, you know, we're trying to and we're trying to avoid the, the expense of going home. So we went to go see them on the on the 20th. And uh, I, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, yeah, you are talking to Shepherd's Bush Empire, probably no more than. 3,000, 3,500. It's, you know, great venue, good sound. So they, uh, you know, they played just about a 20 set, uh, a 20 song set. Started off with Use It Up. Uh, New Orleans Sinkin came back into the the bill or this would have been 2002. So now this would have been pre-Katrina. So it would have still been, still been there, but was really up front. Uh, Chagrin Falls and Nautical Disaster were there. Uh, lots of stuff from Trouble to Hen House along with Inviolate Light, you know, Phantom Power, obviously making a, um, you know, making a, a good appearance. No Bob Cajun, which you think about it now. Mm, I mean, Wheat Kings. Yep. But, but no Bob Cajun, but they would really have a song with no Bob Cajun. I guess they did this one. So I am kind of, 
it was between two nights. And I think maybe if my brother hadn't been visiting, I wouldn't have done the same thing night after night. Although again, you could have gone back and told your friends, yeah, I saw the hip play twice on two nights. We could have gotten it. I, I think I was always a bit reluctant to, um, you know, to buy from aftermarket sellers, but, uh, but I certainly could have done that. So we went and we had a, what a great time. We got a little bit pushed around as we were standing near the stage, you know, when, uh, you know, blow it high dough came on, but you know, we, we kind of backed off a bit that we pushed in and backed off. It was, um, yeah, it was fun. I mean, it was a great, it was a great, great show. What I'm realizing though, is that as you see the shows, the the one thing that Pearl Jam does that I think is so great is that then you can then buy the recording of the show. Like they don't always mix it and make it, you know, super, super fancy, but they 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 sell the show afterwards. So then it really helps cement it in your memory because I'm looking at, um, you know, going to setlist.fm and looking at the different set lists and thinking, oh yeah, I've actually heard them play Week Kings a lot more times than I thought they did. So yeah, so that was great. That was the first time I've seen them since, uh, since Seattle, since WOMAD. And it was a, it was a great show and it was a good time. So who else did I see between, you know, arriving in 2002, there was, there was Wheatus. Um, I don't think, no, some, a lot of the other ones were, were after we'd, we'd moved house and we bought our, we bought our flat, you know, which got us, we bought it. We ended up buying an apartment that was literally, you know, three blocks down from the Brixton Academy. So my first trip to Brixton was a little bit, um, a little, a little definitely like fish out of water. You know, it was very, uh, you know, I, let's face it. I grew up in Grand Prairie where, which is, you know, a whitest of white places. I mean, just, you know, white, 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 white. And in Brixton, it was a much more, you know, much more racially diverse area, certainly even than where we were living in, in, uh, in Battersea. So it was a bit, you know, I'm still, I'll admit to being a bit naive and still getting my feet underneath me living in this new city. But, uh, but yeah, once we, we moved down there, we lived down in Brixton, we really enjoyed the, uh, you know, enjoyed the neighborhood and enjoyed the, you know, the area. And it certainly made coming home from seeing placebo or Kaiser chiefs at the Academy a lot easier and a lot shorter trip than say, you know, schlepping to and from Camden, uh, from, uh, from where I live now. So that was my live experience there. It was, it was a great gig. I mean, there is just, is no substitute for seeing them in a small venue. I mean, you think about now what they play in Canada and like the Kingston, the old Kingston war Memorial arena or the K rock arena, I think, as I call it now, uh, is a small venue for, for the hip to play. But this was, this is like seeing them at the, the Jubilee auditorium in Edmonton, actually smaller than that, you know? So it is, a it is a tremendous privilege to be able to see them there. So I'd see them there a couple more times. Uh, we will definitely talk about those as we, as we go through and get to the right albums. So I wanted to share something I, um, something I came across and I'm, I'm, I'm doing this podcast to share my, my feelings and my experience, you know, with the hip. And I'm really always interested to hear other people's comments and experiences with the hip. And my wife forwarded me an article on, uh, on, on from the CBC website that was published in early March, 2021 called as an immigrant, I wanted to understand Canada's fascination with the tragically hip. This is what I found. And it's written by uh, an author named Lindsay Pereira, who came in to Canada, arrived in Canada, you know, like six weeks after, you know, six weeks before Gord Downey died. So, you know, in the middle of a national mourning, which we'd already started, uh, you know, long before, you know, long before he passed when we all found out, you know, that he had inoperable brain cancer. I mean, and this was, this ended up, it ended up being big news. I mean, it was, uh, it, it was talked about in the, in the guardian here, the paper I read in London. 
So it wasn't just in Canada that this was news. So she, she writes about, you know, discovering the hip and wanting to explore Canada coming from Mumbai to, uh, to Toronto and trying to, um, you know, trying to see how she could, um, you know, she could get into it. So there was interesting, you know, I've been talking about ever the band she knew and how they've been created by young people trying to connect with their peers and, and, you know, bands would uh, have a limited life looking at, um, you know, talking about the hip and she gets so many great points about that. She connects the hip with, uh, the grateful dead, the fall or fish where, you know, the bands with a huge life following with them, you know, putting an amazing amount of records together, but reading through the article, it was just amazing how she found, I would say she got to the heart of, uh, you know, of what the hip is from the outside in. So it's, it's such an amazing gateway into understanding a lot of the positive things there are about being, being Canadian. Even if you kind of come in, come in your own way, like she was attracted by a, um, a Tori Amos cover version of a head of a head by a century, which really cool. I like to, I'd like to hear that maybe kind of mix that in with the Sarah Poli, uh, cover of uh, courage for human Clennon. So she really then got into in violet light and particularly it's a good life if you don't weaken. So she was actually familiar with the book with, with the graphic novel as opposed to there. So I would, as opposed to the song, but drew in and, and got to love the song and all the references. And it was amazing reading through it and reading through her, how much her experience became to me, not mirror my own, but have the same sort of threads about the hip being an anchor to Canada being a way into, you know, part of the, part of the Canadian people. I mean, I think it's still, the hip still doesn't speak necessarily to the, uh, you know, completely to the experience of the first nations people. I think perhaps the songs like, you know, good night out of Wapiscat and, and their involvement in the movement to, um, you know, to turn justice for the, uh, you know, missing and murdered, uh, indigenous women across Canada, that there was a recognition that, um, you know, that they had to do something with the privilege, but I would, I would highly recommend you track this article down. It, it's also kind of interesting to hear the, um, and to look, read the comments below it, which are a bit, uh, a bit people then saying, oh yeah, well, my story's this and my story's that, and not a lot of gatekeeping, but not a lot of engaging directly with the, um, you know, with her story, but, uh, but it is absolutely worth tracking down to, to read. So this brings us to, you know, I think the close of inviolate light, uh, you know, it was co- recorded in Nassau and, uh, and Bath, Ontario, not, not the Bath here, but Bath, Ontario. And, you know, began kind of a, kind of a pattern of maybe two to three years in between albums where they would just tour the shit out of the album, which is, you know, terrific for them. It brought them here a number of times and, uh, you know, and it was something that I, I tremendously enjoyed. So the next one up is, uh, in between evolution. So that will be, uh, there'll be another one that I'm not as familiar with from the album, but we'll then talk about, um, you know, a live, you know, what a live recording can mean to you and what it can bring to you, even if you weren't necessarily there on the day. So we'll see you in, I'm going to just say two to three weeks and I'm just going to pretend that this is coming out on time. I don't even know what on time is. I don't, uh, I don't, I'm not committed to doing this other than to, you know, for the people that do read, do listen and to myself. So I'll, I'll keep going, but I'll, I guess I'll you know, do it when I can. So thanks very much. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. You've been listening to That Night in Toronto, a personal journey through the music of the tragically hip. 
hosted by me, Vince Savard. Written, produced, and engineered by me, Vince Savard. You can reach me on social media uh, at, at TNITpod on Twitter, or you can also email in at t- e- email me at TNITpod at gmail.com. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.